Welcome, everybody, to Behind the Blade Podcast, Episode 4. My name is Jim Stewart, and with me today is Matt Martin. Today, we're going to be talking about why Oklahoma was thrown back into the Victoria era, why YouTube hates prepper and knife channels, apparently, and we're going over history from Will Skagel or Bill Skagel and Bo Randall. And then we're answering your Q&As. Stay tuned on this episode of Behind the Blade Podcast. All right, let's just jump right into it, everybody. We have a new segment for you right off the bat. In Oklahoma, knives are more free. This is unbelievable. I mean, so this kind of ties back into our last episode where we discussed the switchblade ban lift in Colorado, uh, my previous home state. And I guess now in Oklahoma, they're saying that's cool, too. Jim? Yeah, it's been it's been cool for a little while now. This passed it in November 10th, 2016. Um, underneath um, it, you, you could say that it skated underneath the, you know, uh, the notice of everybody because of the election. Yeah, it was, yeah. The, it was roughly the same week. I don't know if you were there for that, Jim. But those are pretty hairy times. <laughs> <laughs> it really defined for me, you know, yeah. what, you know, how people thought. <laughs> but Oklahoma Bill SB one one five nine became effective November first, two thousand sixteen, which removes dagger, Bowie knife, dirk knife, and sword cane from the items prohibited from carry in Oklahoma. Sword cane. So you guys may have heard <laughs> the Victorian era. I mean, I look. I think sword canes are cool in the mall ninja sense, and maybe in the collectible <laughs> historical sense. But for them to personally and explicitly address this one weapon, I just thought I thought it was funny. I thought it was they're like okay. Good. The good news is, guys, sword canes are okay. <laughs> like, okay, all right. <laughs> My grandfather with a limp will no longer be able to worry. <laughs> Just a, I, well, what what happens if if the hipster movement somehow kind of melds with the steampunk movement. We just Ugh. have all these dapper guys in bowling hats walking around <laughs> instead of man buns with sword canes and uh, uh, what are they called? What are the, the glasses that pinch uh, the right, bridge right, right, your right. nose? Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember what they're called, yeah. but I know what you're talking somebody, about. Somebody hit us with that because there's a real term for it. Uh, Pince-nez? Pince-nez? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to get off topic, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I have yeah, no idea. I don't remember. I have no idea. Uh, the next funny thing is that... Um, David Stone of Dong's Guns and Guns Ammo and Reloading demonstrated the various types of knives. So apparently, the the people that wrote the news story went out to Dong's Guns, and and uh, and he showed them what all of the knives were specifically. Um, Never forget that name. It, I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I mean, just sitting here reading it right now, I'm yeah. just like David Stone of Dong's Guns. Just giggling. Yeah. Okay, I mean, this is this is this is a porn line again. Yeah, right. I mean, like we keep on running into that. So in the past, you could own them but not carry them. And uh, this law follows last year's change that made switchblades or automatic knives also legal to carry, which is which is a good thing. Um, and also, Mr. Stone said that. I think it's a good thing. People who have, who have been convicted of a felony, something that's not violent like a felony DUI, can't have a gun anymore. Because in the United States, if you're a felon, you can't, you know, you get those rights suspended. This would be a good self-defense weapon for them. Now, that's an interesting point. And, mm -hmm. and I think this is one worth addressing. And this varies so dramatically state by state is can you carry a knife for self-defense? I mean, we look at stuff like the Spyderco Matriarch. I mean, this is a purpose-built knife. Right. And unless you are in the business of cutting rope 24-7, this is, it was designed, and Spyderco makes no bones about it, this was designed to be a self-defense knife. With the wave feature, it's automatically deploying. Right. And in Michigan, intent 
is everything. Yep, it and, is too. Um, and New Hampshire is another another one where intent is is everything. Right. So it, if you carry with the intent of self defense, it's actually criminalizing yeah. that carry. Yeah, absolutely. You are basically saying I plan on hurting somebody with this. Somebody will be hurt via my actions with this thing that I'm carrying. That's basically what intent boils down to. Yes, it's for self defense. Yes, you were attacked first, but under the law, it's illegal. Which do. I completely disagree with because I do think knives make a decent self-defense weapon. Absolutely. Uh, especially something maybe less bananas than a cane sword. You know what I mean? <laughs> but to have a pocket knife that is yeah. like, hey, this guy just shattered a beer bottle. I'm at the bar. It's under three and a half inches in total length. This guy smashed a beer bottle. Is now coming at my face. I have a way to aggressively engage him and neutralize the threat. Correct. And, and I think that is important. But unfortunately, the state that we currently reside in feels that having something with the intent of using it, like you said, Jim, right. to cause bodily harm is what will get you judged by 12. Fortunately, right. it will spare you, hopefully, from being carried by six. I had a friend in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's knife laws at the time that this that this event happened, this story I'm about to tell you, um, at the time it happened, it was all based on intent as well. And he got pulled over by the police, and he actually wasn't doing anything wrong. It wasn't like a bar brawl or anything. They uh, they just decided to search his car at the time. He was totally compliant. He's like, yeah, hop in. That's fine. And so they searched him, found the knife, and the cop goes, so what do you use this for? And he goes, well, I use it for self-defense. What kind of knife was it? It was a folding knife. I oh. can't remember specifically uh. what kind. He, he didn't know much about knives at the time. Gotcha. And... And uh, it was just a, some type of folding knife. I doubt even he knew what it was. Was it but made out of CH1NA steel? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, Matt. Expertly he treated, by the way. <laughs> but no, the second that he said that, he said, okay, well, you're going to jail because everything's based on intent, even though in the case of self-defense. And I agree with Matt that that's, it's not, it's not the proper interpretation of that word. It's just another excuse to... To, to throw some weight around. At least at least it's how I see it, and I could be totally wrong about that. I probably am. So, and, well, and again, this isn't up to the law enforcers. Yeah. I mean, they have their job to do. This is up to the laws as they're written and, and as we voted on them. Uh, you know, for instance, tonight, uh, we're we're going to do a Randall segment. We addressed that already in the intro. Uh, so I was, I have to carry Black Randy, as I call it. This is a, <laughs> it's a Blackjack Model 1-7 that I retrofitted with a solder guard and you know, the stack leather with the black, red, white, and blue and spacers. And it looks awesome. It's really and it, it looks like a Randall. So I call it Black Randy. And so I, I wore this over today for inspiration because I don't have a real Randall knife at the time. Um, but I we were doing this segment, and I thought it was cool. So if a cop pulled me over and said, well, what are you carrying this for? I'm not going to say to dag a motherfucker with it. I'm going to say, <laughs> well, because I'm looking for inspiration on this podcast, and then I'd have to explain what a podcast is and be like, right. I just want to hang out in the basement with my bud and talk <laughs> about knives, and this right. knife makes me feel good, so get over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, whenever we carry a knife, it's always non-threatening. It's always a non-threatening purpose. Like, um, whenever I carry a knife, it's always for, and you can blatantly say, just utility. And if the cop is cool, he'll be like, okay, that's it. And if he's not cool, he'll ask you specifically what, and then you can just start naming things like opening boxes, opening a chip bag, you know, cutting normal stuff I think stuff we should like be that. able to say, but, because I like it. Oh, yeah. yeah because I like the yeah. way it looks. I like the way it feels. I like the history behind it. I like this one thing. You know what? Now that I think about it, you probably could just say that. That's exactly what I, I would say, yeah. because I like it. Because I like it. Yeah, and yeah. I use a knife all the time. Well, why do I carry this knife? Because I use a knife all the time, but I like yep. the way this one looks better than other ones. Right, and and, and in Matt's defense, and to bolster, bolster his side, I have him. I have seen him use it to construct things, to cut paracord, to, you know, just, right. and, and, and it's a seven-inch Blackjack Model 1.7. I mean, so it's, <laughs> it's a monster it's, knife. It's, it's, a monster, it's a big old knife, but yeah. he still uses it for utility. I mean, and he absolutely does. So, so you know, just just a, a little lesson in interpretation of the law, right there. But 
Um, good on you. Yeah, yeah good on yeah, you, Oklahoma, like, for for again just saying follow, you know, not uh, pro, excuse me, I don't speak for a living. <laughs> um, for se- following for setting the precedent that Colorado followed by lifting this ridiculous archaic ban on switchblades. Absolutely. And good on you for being able to carry daggers and stuff. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we make daggers. I love daggers. They're not as functional, but. They're cool, and it shouldn't be criminalized to carry it, especially if you're carrying around some $300 custom dagger like we covered in last episode. It's totally different than some, you know, packy piece of shit that you picked up and right. are using to knock off a circle K. So Absolutely. good on you. Absolutely. Congratulations, Oklahoma, again. Moving on. Moving on. Knife and Prepper YouTube channels have been hacked recently. Yeah. So what's the scoop on this? I saw... Uh, well, was Chris Tanner of Prepared Mind 101. Yeah. He's got a pretty prolific channel, and he said that he even got hit by this, and he's a friend he of ours. He did, absolutely. So so our friend our friend Chris over at Prepared Mind 101, his channel, his video names, and I believe a bunch of text in his video channel got changed to some sort of message from the group Our Mine. So they gained access to as many as 1,200 YouTube channels and altered the titles and descriptions of most of their videos. Did they use it for their own benefit, like our, like like doing the Baba Booey kind of thing? You know what <laughs> kinda, I mean? Kinda, kinda. So what that, so what our mind is is that they are a hacker group that people hire to test how vulnerable other people's systems are. Ooh. Does that make sense? So like sneakers, that Robert Redford kinda, movie. Kinda, kinda. Yeah. yeah, they're 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 white hats that gain attention by doing gray hat things. So there's white hats, there's black hats, and then there's gray hats. Gotcha. Right? Right? So they're doing kind of like a gray hat thing. So what they did is they actually didn't go to each individual channel and, like, break it out and then change all the video descriptions. They actually, um, so prepared my 101, Gideon's Tactical, Wrangler Star, The Urban Prepper. There's a bunch of other channels as well, about about 1,200 channels. They're all kind of clients of a, of a broad company called Studio 71, and it's a media research agency. And they own rights to those channels. So what they do, what they do, um, and it's actually a really good business move, is that if you own, let's say that the owners of Studio 71, what they do is that if you're a YouTube channel and you have a following, they'll buy most of your, rev- they'll, they'll buy your revenue from you, like, like in one thing. And maybe maybe their business model is a little bit different, but basically what they do is that these YouTube channels sign on with these guys, and then they share revenue from the videos. And oh. what that does is that Studio 71 has this huge network and huge following and huge advertising and advertising money that they can immediately blast out to get people's attention to start watching these particular channels. And then they split the revenue somehow. Almost like a holdings group, I guess. Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. Just for like YouTube channels. And it happens all over the place. There's millions of YouTube channels. Now, Studio 71, do they cater specifically to this prepper knife gun market or um, are they farther reaching? I think they're farther reaching. Oh, okay. So I, I think they're, well, diversity is the word. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're definitely more diverse. I think they're just looking to generate as much revenue as possible from you know, target market groups. And then like a, and the cross market groups. So you know, the hackers attacked them specifically then. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so the hackers attacked them, gained access to these 1200 YouTube channels and then altered the titles and descriptions of their videos. So, so, and the reason why they did that was to, was to just basically go to the world and say, Hey, we are our mind. We have a lot of this power. We can help protect you from attacks like this. It was an ad. It was, it was was a clandestine (laughs) black bag advertisement. Yeah. It was like, you have to pay us for protection or we're going to burn down your shop. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, that's marketing guys. That's marketing for sure. it, it, It was definitely a giant marketing ploy. I think. 
Um, I don't think that there was anything personal in there against like Gideon's tactical or prepared my 101 or anything. I just think that they happened to be in the database that that group hacked. Gotcha. And so, and but but it was far reaching. I mean, if you were looking at Gideon's tactical or prepared my 101, a bunch of stuff changed. It was all started with hashtag our mine, and then what looks what looks to be the exact same video posted. As the title of the as the title of every video. Wow. So it wasn't like one person going in there and individually changing every one of them. It was they went into the database, executed a script that changed the titles and descriptions, and just hit submit. Everything. The thing. Yeah, blanket everything hit. Yeah. It was a giant blanket hit. It was probably done in less than fifteen minutes. They probably went in there, observed the ob- observed the database, and just said, "Okay, I know how to write a script that'll attack all these different parts." Wrote the script off the side, hacked in, executed the script, jumped out. Jim's all. It probably took fifteen minutes. It takes me two and a half hours to link my sound bar to my TV. <laughs> and these guys are like, "We're gonna just shatter the world in fifteen minutes." I'm like yeah. two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> Bluetooth <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For them for them to hook up a TV it'd probably be a little bit shorter than right. that. But, <laughs> but but no, it definitely it definitely was a was a wake up call for for further network security. I mean like even even the most basic and rudimentary network security, I can't impress upon anybody enough that they need to be able to do. It's actually what I went to college for, by the way. Oh, nice. So I went I went to college for computer systems technology with emphasis on security. I went to college for coeds. <laughs> Damn it! You had the more fun one. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't attend. I, I would just go there. I, had, I think I had one girl in one class in the years that I went to college, so, and all of all the stuff. But, but so, did they get it fixed? Did, did Chris oh, yeah. Tanner get it fixed? Oh, definitely. No, all they got to do is just roll back the old the old backups for, oh, okay. for, for titles and descriptions only. And and I'm positive that within a couple of days everything will be sorted out if it hasn't been sorted out already by this point. And I'm sure it has. So, so you guys are clear to go back to your favorite prepper gun knife sites and, and business as usual. Yeah. I don't Good. even think they took the videos down. I think they just altered the titles and descriptions of all of them to to to, to just, just blast it out there. Gotcha. So um, look for reaction videos from Gideon's Tactical and Prepared Mind 101 if they do or Wrangler Star Urban Prepper. Follow them on Facebook. Definitely check them out. And um, – and uh, we hope that this doesn't happen again because it's definitely disruptive to the people that are genuinely trying to do business. So, oh, for sure. I mean, and a lot of these guys, this is their livelihood. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of gear reviewers and stuff. And I tell you what, it seems like a pretty formidable uh, industry because you're really competing against a lot of other reviewers. And it's hard to get a leg up because it starts as guys reviewing either what they have in their pocket at that moment. Right. Or it's what I hate as a knife maker. I know we're getting short on time for this segment, but what I hate as a mm-hmm. knife maker is the... Gross. And listen, all you YouTube reviewers out there, I'm going to speak freely for the entire knife making industry. Stop hitting us up for free knives. Yeah. I tell you what, if we, <laughs> if we like what you're doing, we'll be glad to send you knives to have them reviewed. But stop soliciting, hey, I've got uh, seven followers in Argentina. Oh, yeah, I would yeah. love to review one of your knives if you would just send it to me on the house. Yeah. Tell you what, nobody wants to do that. Not a production company, definitely not a custom maker. Nobody wants to put 12 hours of their life into that. Right, absolutely. I mean, you're basically asking a custom maker to sacrifice, you know, a, a week's worth of work. So you can show knives. it to six of your buds. Right, right. So as a rule, to supplement what Matt's saying, if you have anywhere between, if you have less than, and I'm speaking super generously here, if you have less than 5,000 subscribers, don't even bother talking to us. Yeah, just figure. And don't even bother. Well, I mean, and we we'd love to help you out. I shouldn't. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on Jim's oh, yeah. ass a okay, little bit sure. here. <laughs> it's not. Don't bother talking to us. We'll be glad to help you out. We'll be glad to give you points, tips, whatever it is that you need as far as the industry goes. But don't hit us up for free shit. And right. and so and that's just we're gonna let that die right there. But 
Yeah, I mean, get out there. Start reviewing every single thing. If they like your personality, if they like the quality of your video, if they like your format, then you will start getting subscribers. And trust me, the makers will come to you. You do not Correct. have to go to them. So, yeah, mm-hmm. hack it out in the trenches, and, all you guys. All right, so I apologize for that then. That was what I said was extremely harsh. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Matt, for tempering me down because I get contacted, no joke, no joke, maybe seven or eight times a week by guys with eight subscribers. Right. And and it's just like, no, I'm not going to give you a $300 knife. <laughs> yeah, just on the cuff, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. They're... I actually have to do that now, you know, coming coming back to my own mind. There's a, there's a couple of YouTube channels that did contact me with a huge followings that I'd like to check out. So, but anyway. Anyway, big news from behind the blade. We just landed our first big exclusive interview with Todd Begg from Todd Begg Knives. Which is awesome. We're really excited about that. And uh, obviously we're in this for the long haul and we want to keep things interesting for you guys. And and it was just important. We were like, here's a very prolific maker, uh, a guy who's really done it all. And we thought it'd be cool to have him on the show. And evidently he's a pretty cool cat because he jumped at the opportunity and said absolutely he would do it. So uh, you could be looking forward to that in episode five. Everybody stay tuned. This segment of Behind the Blade podcast is brought to your ear holes by our good friends over at Copus Designs. Copus Designs puts forth a full line of EDC gear, including their STK project. The STK sliding knife and tool may be familiar to you guys from their very successful campaign on Kickstarter, or maybe you guys read about it in a very recent feature article written in Popular Mechanics. Either way, we invite you to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Please like and share once you go say hi to them from BTB and follow them on their website. It'd be a good idea to keep pace with these guys as they're constantly developing and coming up with new gear. And a lot of it is just rock solid fit, form, and function. So check out copusdesigns.com and see what's next from them. All right, as we told you guys, we're doing a double barrel blast of history segment. We are going to be covering Bill Skagel and Bo Randall. You guys are digging the history segments, and uh, we had to crack some books and really dig deep. Jim, uh, I, I see that you have a fucking phone book of notes on Bill Skagel. So, <laughs> well, it's funny. This actually is a phone book. Was I supposed to research? No? Okay. So um, I have the Skagel Handmade Book by James R. Lucy, who was actually Bill Skagel's physician. Oh, Believe nice. it or not. I don't know if you knew that Like or his not. medical doctor. Like physician. his medical yeah. doctor. Yeah. Bill didn't actually like going to doctors, except for stuff that was pretty serious. But but he did strike up a friendship with this guy. And, um, and Mr. Lucy actually wrote this pretty comprehensive book about it. Um... So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. Bill Skagel was born in Canada, Brook, township of Sarawak, in, uh, in, uh, in the Ontario province of Canada in 1875 to a family um, that actually were boat builders. I don't nice. know if you I don't I don't know if you knew that or not. They actually I did not know that. So so they it doesn't there's there's not a whole lot of history of what he did before he was six. But when he was six, the family moved. <laughs> there wasn't a lot to talk about before he was no, six. No, because he was you know a <laughs> child. <his> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Bill Bill Skagel used cloth diapers <laughs> because it was 1875 and other random things that were in late 1800s. So from six so, onward, what do we got? All right. So from six on from six onward, his family actually um, moved 
to a different province in, in Ontario and actually had a boat building company. Believe it or not, so so he in, imbued early on. You have this this history of being self sufficient and hand making beautiful things, right off the bat. Um, his uh, his family's company was well known for making boats that would last generations. I think the last one that we know of burned down in like nineteen thirty eight. No shit. So from the eighteen hundreds. From from, yeah. from the from the mid to late eighteen hundreds. Yeah, it was actually not not pretty terrible. So, but. Bill Skiggle from that point had uh, had a short history in Canada. He got married. The, the The family didn't like the marriage, and then he immigrated to the United States. Why didn't the family like the marriage, Jim? So he married this apparently beautiful woman that was seventeen. <laughs> I think there's a song about this. Isn't there's, there? There's a I hear it on a country station. I think that's a coincidence. But but uh, no, she was seventeen, and the family didn't like that. And and I can tie, I can kind of see that. That's a little young to be getting married to somebody so young. But he but he said, "Screw you guys! I'm moving to the U.S." And he never spoke to his family again. Like at that point, it was like a fissure in his family. He he totally he, he left he left everything, left the boat business behind, emigrated to the United States, and then he and then Winger working. wrote a song about oh, his exploits. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Skagel Chronicles. Yeah. <laughs> So, but uh, why are we talking about Bill Skagel? It's because Bill Skagel was probably the first American knife maker. This is after he was naturalized, of course. So we can genuinely say he emigrated legally and he was here. He was naturalized for those for the 10 years. And it's legit. He was an American. He was the first American to give art a form to American knives, a- along with practicality and functionality. Totally. And honestly, uh, in my mind's eye bill skagel was the the great grandfather of contemporary custom makers i mean we all talk about loveless and then you know uh we'll get into all this but i can tease you a little bit about it loveless tried to buy a randall randall was influenced by skagel skagel was overlapping but slightly after webster marble so i mean Mm -hmm. if you guys want the full family tree there that's really where it comes from. And he was the one that, like you said, added the art to it. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, he, he made it crazy. He was a crazy guy. And he, <laughs> he made him nuts. Yeah, he, he really was. He he was totally an individualist, but he was like an extreme individualist. Right. So after after he had uh, after he he got a divorce from his first wife and, and moved to a different part of Michigan, he moved to m- roughly Muskegon, a small township. He bought an acre and a third. And he made his own workshop on it that was powered by submarine batteries and windmills and a Cadillac engine. When for, Jim for says power. he made his own workshop, I mean, he Gilligan's Island, the workshop, right, like right. it was all OSP. <laughs> it was all on-site <laughs> procurement, the yeah. weirdest shit ever. I mean, it was really something. <laughs> but but the thing is, he did it and he made it work and he still made beautiful things out of it. Um, he he built this land. He made his own cabin. And he etched his name into the glass on the thing on the thing. And right now, it's like a little bit of an iconic spot. So if you're a knife maker, you should definitely is it still there? Like it. A, kind of preserved as a museum, sort of. I don't know if it's still there or preserved as a museum. I don't know, okay. but I think I think it probably should have been by now. Check your Google Foo, guys. Yeah. I'm sure you could figure that out yeah, that, and that get was, back to us with the results. That always happens to us. We always prep the crap out of this, and we always try to get all our stuff right. And we're like, wait a minute, what about this thing? What we're thinking of Question. online on yeah. air? Like we don't know. You guys should look. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, it's still it's still extremely interesting. This guy was extremely self sufficient. I mean, we're not just, we're not talking about just knives. He made pliers to pull out his own teeth. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> right. it's, like, it's like it's like I consider myself to not be you know to to, to, to be pretty handy, to, to be pretty handy. <laughs> but like that's not something that would ever cross my mind. I'd pay the money and go to the freaking dentist. Yeah. But but no, he totally did that. He he made pliers to pull out his own teeth, and he pulled out his own teeth. He replaced them with gold teeth that he made. 
that he put in himself. The guy was nuts. None of us would even think about doing stuff like that. He was extremely proficient at what he was doing. He was he was staunchly conservative. He always paid his he always he always paid his favors back, even to people that he didn't like along the lines of politics. Didn't he? Didn't he have that? What was the? It, it was called. It was called the Democrat knife. Yeah, the so, damn Democrat. It was knife. called the damn <laughs> Democrat knife. So, so he believed that uh, that that because he was staunchly conservative, he had just had the foundation to believe that the Democrat foundation was two faced, and so he made this one knife to pay a favor back to a Democrat, the local Democrat that got elected office where he was, and it was it had two different handles on it, a left and a right. That one was like rosewood, and the other one was ivory on each side and he called it the damn democrat knife because it was as two-faced as his politics there is a guy who gives zero <laughs> shits right. what other people think right. and that, <laughs> and that's the point of me bringing up the story is that it, bill skagel just did not give a crap yeah. and and he just made up his own mind he he made he found his own happiness and and i think he did an excellent job he he was also very very much a giving person another story about one of his knives was that a is that a, a local grocery store that he was in a bag lady was would uh, would would take a thing that was suspended from the ceiling and and constantly um, wrap bags with it because people were checking out and leaving so she'd wrap the bag up break it with her hands and then leave but Bill saw this and it saw that saw the furrows in her hand that were caused by like constantly breaking the string over. Imagine doing that for eight hours a day every day. <clears throat> right. Oh, know? absolutely. I, I don't care if it's like the tiniest thread. You're going to get screwed up from that at some point. So the lady had been doing this for a long time. He made her a knife to alleviate that. She had it. She t- she she and she used it every single day for I think it was like 15, 15 years after he made it for her before she was robbed and it was taken. And then it was recovered like later on. Which but, is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a historical piece for all intents and purposes yeah. for this tiny little industry that we love. That is an important piece. And for them to find it again later is they, awesome. They totally did. I mean, Bill even had like a record of making it, which is just how they were able to compare and, and make sure that it was that it was there. Uh, cl- um, uh, they had stories from the lady. They talked to everybody and they were able to just put it together and find it again. It was pretty cool. Some pawn shop guy probably offered him five bucks for it. He's like, hey, <laughs> Uh, and I'll give you five bucks for the knife. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was an afterthought. Right. Right. It, it wasn't even like an important thing. And then it was just this huge piece of history that we would die to see. Um, but he was also a very giving person on top of that. He made the knife for the lady. He also made braces for kids suffering from polio. Not mouth braces, like Not, arm right, and leg right, braces. Right, arm okay. and leg braces. Well, polio. He was a, he was a polio orthodontist. I don't know. <laughs> a polio so, I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> right. right. So um, he also hated mass production because he didn't trust it because because they were it, it was cheaper it was cheaper means of making it back then out of cheaper materials to drive the price down to flood the market with stuff so I can totally understand why he didn't like that now things are a little bit different now I think but then again I'm biased so oh yeah <laughs> I, I, well I mean you think of real mass production you know what I mean like right. these guys uh, look K Bar puts out a hell of a decent knife you know what I mean and they crank them out by the metric ton oh yeah things are know? a little bit different now than they were then. <clears throat> or, or or did they do a lot back then too that was excellent? No, I, I mean, so in the era that he was around, so this was in the 30s. Early, yeah, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. early 1900s. So mm-hmm. mass production really at that point was really going to be in Sheffield. And gotcha. so Sheffield, okay. England was mass production. <clears throat> and I mean, they're so sought after now. And you look at them and some, are, uh, some of them are of dubious quality and other ones are rock solid, just like we're experiencing with uh, China versus Taiwan today, let's just say. Sure. You know what I mean? Taiwan okay. puts out amazing stuff, Taichung specifically. And uh, China is hit and miss. Some stuff's awesome. Some stuff is rubbish. Right. And Sheffield was doing that. So I'm sure being as wrapped up in his personal politics, he was gravitating towards the rubbish <laughs> and being like, <laughs> right. look what these guys are throwing out these days. This is so, all mass-produced. See, this, see mass production? This guy, yeah. from what I'm okay. hearing from you, Jim, mm-hmm. was a total individual. So yeah. anything that was homogenous... Or anything that was en masse, 
is against his ethos. That's oh, against oh, everything oh, that he is. You know what? You, you bring up a good point because because everything that he is is all about being extremely self-sufficient. If he didn't have a knife, he'd go make one. He didn't have some pliers, he'd go make if it. If he didn't have a tooth, he'd go make one. <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> right, right. Mop buckets to teeth, man. Um, so unfortunately in 1935 though, um, a fire destroyed his shop that he set up in 1917. Wow. So it was it was it was just under 30 years that it was just under Ooh. 20 years. Just under 20 years that he had been sitting in this shop making making kind of his own tools, his own surgical equipments, his own his own his own knives. Which is <clears throat> and I don't mean to interrupt, but no, that, I mean that's a blip on on history. You guys are like, "Oh, okay, the shop burned down at some point." Look, uh, you know, I I, I knew Gary from Ghost Town Knives when when his shop burned down. Uh, you know, his son Huck has since picked up the baton and ran with it like crazy over at Ghost Town. Go Huck. But yeah. uh, you know, th- this is a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal to me moving from our first shop after being there for five years. It becomes your nest. It becomes right. your den. It grows around you. And so, to have twenty years, especially being an individual like this guy is, to have twenty years in that location and have it burn to the ground. I mean, right. that's a fucking nightmare. I mean, that's a oh, worst yeah. case scenario. That's, it takes a lot to regroup and rebuild from that. Absolutely. Just imagine all of the stuff that we don't even know about that was lost in that fire that, that could have shed a lot more light into his personality and, and, and his ability. Totally. I mean, so, uh, and the, yeah, it was a shop that he had set up in 1917 and it burned down in 1935 and I'm sure it was devastating. Right after that, he bought that one and a third acre of land that I told you about, guys about earlier near Fruitport, Michigan. And he called it Dogwood Nub. He had a way with words. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I, I never had that. I never had that uh, desire to name Dogwood property. Nub. Dogwood Nub. I'm assuming he tripped over a stump of dogwood walking <laughs> into the place, and then you're like, "That's what it is." So, <laughs> all right, I need you to name a name a place after a piece of thing you just stepped over, and what your toe felt like afterwards. Yeah, I don't, know, let's, I don't know. Let's just do some kind of like canine protuberance. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So um, he was married twice, and he uh, apparently never had any children. But um, that's because they were eleven. <laughs> time, right? They, they weren't available to. Yeah. But um, 1936 and 1937, that's when he bought Dogwood Nub and set up shop again and reinvented all of his tools and became became self sufficient. That's the that's the submarine batteries. That's the, that's the windmill. That's the Cadillac engine and the turbine. So the cat. So what I, I don't know if you touched on that already. Uh, What's the scoop behind the Cadillac engine? So so apparently he had a Cadillac engine that that powered a gas generator. <laughs> this cat was resourceful, oh, guys. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like he's like, why would I need to pay for electricity when I could go take that out of the junkyard and right. fire it up? And and you gotta you gotta hand it to him that there's some credit there. <laughs> so he was there until the day he died. At, at that point. At Dogwood Nub. At Dogwood Nub. And he died on March 26th in 1963. 1963. 1963. He had a good run. I mean, he saw he saw a number of things happen at that point. I mean, a lot World of stuff War happened. I, World, World War II. World War II. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, what was the Kennedy assassination? Or uh, totally 60... Uh, you guys, I'm sorry. I'm I'm better with knife history than I am with pol- political history. So yeah, I want to say so, it's either 64 or 67. Okay, uh, so, those two. Are, I'll look it up. Hang uh, on, you carry okay. on. Okay, all right. It so so regardless, if it's anywhere between there, Bill Skiggle had no idea what that was because he was dead at the time. <laughs> because he was dead at the time, but he was an extremely iconic. Um, and is the grandfather of the custom knife, the custom knife world, and the custom knife market. I mean, he was the first guy. To, to truly bring a name to himself in, in what he did. And basically what he did was he made knives for himself to sell. He sold them at Abercrombie & Fitch, and he sold them uh, person-to-person per, person sales. And and he became a very, very influential knife maker. And he was inspiring to the other 
amazing knife maker that we were going to talk about, Bill Randall. And there is a little bit of conflict as to exactly how that happened. So, Bo Randall... Hang on. So, I'm going I'm to interrupt real yeah. quick because it was November of 1963. And he he didn't, as far as Bill Skagel knew, JFK lived forever. Okay. He, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't make it to that fateful day in Texas. Right. <laughs> Probably angry because he was a Democrat. Right. <laughs> Democrat president. <laughs> so... So there's a little bit of conflict, and I want to touch on this too because it because it totally overlaps with what Matt's going to talk about. And the overlap, the conflict here is in this book that I'm reading. It says that in 1936 to 1937, when he set up when when Bill Skagel set up Dogwood Nub, that's when Bo Randall mentored under Bill Skagel to begin Bo Randall's knife making career. Now, this is this is an authoritative book. This is an official book. Uh, James with James R. James R. Lucy. This is his mm-hmm. personal physician, and he says that. And I have conflicting reports from Robert L. Gaddis in the Randall Made Knives book. These are both authorities on the subject, and they're not congruent with each other when it comes to the timeline. Which which is really interesting. Matt, Matt, you want to lead us right into part two? Yeah, I mean, this is a natural progression, and we Excellent. figured, you know, when we started this podcast, we wanted you guys to hear it from the very beginning, and I don't mean like the Bronze Age, you know, or the Stone Age, not that beginning. I mean, when we had actually formed Christian names. So we started with Webster Marble, we went into Bill Skagel, which is, I mean, steeped in intrigue, I think, because he was an odd cat. He was an eccentric, to say the least. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he was just a fucking weirdo. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like so many knife makers are. Look, we're all a little bit bizarre. It takes a certain... Um, I don't know if it's a gene, but it takes a certain personality trait to want to close yourself in a garage, breathe the nastiest shit possible, leave with bloody knuckles <laughs> every day, just so you can sell something that is that costs more than it is physically worth. I mean, this isn't a jar of mayonnaise, right? Or like right, market right. price is two bucks. I mean, some of these cats—they're five thousand oh, dollar knives. I, I mean, I and up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So it takes a certain kind of person to want to delve into that industry. So we're all a little bit sideways. Bill was a little muff kilter than most, I would say, comfortably. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, so so the two books, the two authorities, as far as we can find, conflict each other. So just a a uh, cautionary tale that just because you read it does not make it a chiseled in stone fact. And so much is left to lore and speculation mm-hmm. and hearsay that we're recounting tribal tales more than we are saying uh, like axioms or physics laws. Correct. You know what I mean? Yeah. These, these can't be tested. They can't be quantified. These are these are tribal tales. These are tales told second, third, fourth, fifth person, mm-hmm. and then they come down to us. So right. all you guys who are super staunch in your beliefs, like, this is the way it happened, we can't even get the two authorities to be congruent with each other. Right. So so just maybe pump the brakes on that a little bit and just take it for what it's worth and enjoy telling the tale of your favorite maker. And, and, and enjoy the discussion back and forth. I mean, like, nobody should be, get, be getting really butthurt over, over, over who said what about whom about particular Totally. Line. It's dialogue. Just, just It's just dialogue. And absolutely flow with it and let it go and have a good discussion about it and discuss the differences. Yeah, these aren't sports teams, guys. You know yeah. what I mean? So uh, the waving the banners, I know I've touched on this before. Uh, I have no problem, you know, busting chops on this. I hate the fanboy culture. My guy's better than your guy. My team is going to beat your team. That has nothing to do with this right now. If you like somebody or you like the knives that they make, then buy those knives. If there's another maker and you like the way they do things, then support that maker also, you know, or that company, right. whatever it may be. But I hate seeing this division of, oh, if you like so-and-so, then you can't like 
you know, brand X. Right. So yeah, no, that's bullshit. So <laughs> let's just break away from that because it's all lore and it's all tribal storytelling. And let's just take it for what it is. Enjoy the shit out of the industry and move forward. Here, here. So my segment in the double barrel history. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to get all. What do you mean your segment? No, just you get yeah, it. <laughs> my segment. The book I read. Um, it's a gentleman named Walter Doan. Big Wal- guy. Walter Doan. You guys don't know Walter Doan? <laughs> That was a dramatic pause, by the way. <laughs> Nothing went wrong with my 1990s rock band microphone. Um, Walter Doan, you guys may know him as Bo. Bo Randall. Bo Randall. Bo Randall, also Walter Doan. Walter Doan. That was his, really? that was his real name. His I Bo didn't know was that. His I thought it was the Randall family. Yeah, no, Whoa. it's, Bo, Ra- it's huh. Bo Randall. Walter Doan, quotation marks, Bo Randall. So, obviously, you guys know Randall made knives. I mean, this is really... His history, the the knives history, knives apostrophe, s apostrophe is so rich. I mean, they've been in every conflict since World War II. The awesome thing that I didn't know until I cracked the book, and I had heard the anecdotes, but I didn't know the geography of where this all started. This started, Randall Knives started Mm -hmm. in the summer of 1936 at Walloon Lake. You ready? Where? In the UP. In the UP. Really? Bo's family was from Ohio, and they would come up to the UP, as you guys know it now, Mm -hmm. New Sheffield. They would come up and vacation in the UP, and one summer he was hanging out with his buddy Lich Steinman, and it was his fishing buddy. The guy is scraping the paint off a rowboat. He's got it upside down, and he's got this big knife out, and he's scraping it off. And Bo goes over to see him and say hi. He took his boat across the lake to go visit this guy Lich, and uh, he's got a skagel in his hand. And this guy is scraping the paint off his boat with a scalpel mm-hmm. knife. And Bo freaked out. He was like, holy shit. I mean, that's such a beautiful knife that you're using. And he didn't make a big deal. He's like, that's crazy, though, that you're using this ornate. Like Jim said, he used mm-hmm. all kinds of materials in his handles and stuff. I mean, really Absolutely. unique builds yeah. and stuff. And and this guy's using one of those scalpel knives, uh, which is actually in the Randall Museum, because Steinman mm-hmm. eventually gave it to Bo many years later. That's awesome. And so, that's But that cool. knife is, a view, is viewable. If you guys... Uh, uh, make it down to Orlando where they're based now, obviously, and where they have been for decades, generations even. Hmm. Uh, they'll have that original knife that was used as awesome. scrape paint. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so he saw a Skagel knife, freaked out. Vacation's over. He goes back to Ohio. Cannot shake the memory of that knife. He can't get it out of his head. You know, <laughs> and then uh, he, I've had he, knives like that. Yeah, because of that. I mean, he was a huge Skagel fan at that moment. You know what I mean? He was right. like, what an amazing knife. And he just can't get it out of his mind. Uh, like I said, he was originally from Cincinnati, but his family started an orange grove agricultural business, a citrus grove agricultural business out of Orlando, Florida, which at that point was not a booming town. I mean, it was right. a pretty sleepy town. It was a center. There were some anecdotes that I thought were interesting. They said, you know, Monday through Friday, everything rolled up. The streets rolled up when the sun went down. But Saturday night, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to find a parking space anywhere, sometimes till 2, 3 in the morning, because wow. everybody would come there for the weekends. It's a weird phenomenon uh, at that point. That's in, interesting. Yeah, okay. in the 30s. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting I, – I, it's not knife related. I just thought it was cool. Um, but eventually, you know, Bo's freaking out, and he's got the bug. He's got the knife bug, obviously – running through his veins. He already had that genetic disposition and it, it just found him. He just tripped <laughs> over. He just tripped over that dogwood nub and, and now he's ready to stage his empire, you know? And so he goes to a cat named Al Marchand, uh, who kind of taught him a little bit about metallurgy. This guy was a blacksmith. He had a fabrication shop down in Orlando and uh, he knew this guy, I think, through some cursory relationships or whatever and he went and checked him out and he taught him a little bit more about metal and he taught him about 
the amazing Chrysler leaf spring and how you could <laughs> use that to heat treat and make a successful knife, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, and he yeah. taught him how to forge the knives and stuff like that. Uh, it, it, I just thought it was kind of cool that he, he looked up this guy. And I mean, I'm getting this from the Robert L. Gaddis book, Randall Made Knives, The History of the Man and the Blades. And this thing is an epic tome on how to start a knife business. I'll That's tell you awesome. guys, it's not a cheap book. I've seen him go for a uh, hundred bucks oh, to yeah. 2,500 bucks, yeah. depending, depending and, on the availability uh, and who wants it. And at the time that, that it's sold, yeah, dude, totally. they're, they're everywhere, uh, but it's a really good book and it delves into all this. I, uh, you know, obviously after following the trend of the Skagel knives, Bo Randall started off or Walter Doan as his folks know him. Um, he started off doing sporting knives, started off doing hunting knives, a lot of trailing points and stuff like that. A lot of stuff, very Skagel looking. I mean, even if you look at the, uh, the current Randall Maker's Mark, mm-hmm. it looks like a Skagel Maker's Mark. Yeah, it does. It I, does. And he'll admit that. He admitted that fully, that he copied that Maker's Mark to make it his own. Mm-hmm. Randall made knives versus Skagel knives. Um, you know, like I said, he originally started with the hunting knives and the sporting knives. The demand went insane during World War II. So in the, right. reference back, 1936 is when he saw the knife at the Which, lake, at Lake Walloon. Right. And then fast forward into the late 30s, early 40s, World War II is going crazy. And that's where you guys got to see that, the Model 1 come out. That, that makes me wonder if it was one of the knives made in the previous shop. Before it got burned down. Oh, that's a good question. You know, yeah. or or if it was like if he if he because there there isn't a specific date from when Skagel bought Dogwood Nub, but um in Fruitport, but it was in 1936, the same year that Randall apparently saw the knife. So it was brand new, or it was from the original original right. shop. Right. You so know? it had to have only been at most maybe a few years old. You know, I, I I'm just totally guessing. But anyway, well, here's something yeah. for you makers that tune into the podcast. Uh, and I thought this was so important that I had to make a note on it. In 1938, Bo solicited Abercrombie & Fitch to carry his knives. They agreed. He sent him pictures, mm-hmm. and then they said yes, and he mailed them off. I want to say it was like 20 blades. He yeah. mailed them off to him uh-huh. with an invoice. You know what they did? What? They fucking mailed him back. What, the knives? Yeah. Really? They said this isn't going to work. They're oh, like, wow. we don't we don't huh. want these. Oh. You know what I mean? Huh. So, you, again, addressing you makers out there that are still cutting your teeth and figuring out how to do all this shit – Bo Randall sent a dealer the knives, and the dealer sent them back. <laughs> Think about that. Bo Randall. We all have to start yeah. somewhere, right? So, right. I mean, that's such an important thing to recognize is that even what you know many would consider the best in the business or in that manufacturing process or however you want to put it, um, he tried and failed, and then he tried again. It wasn't until the 40s mm-hmm. that Abercrombie and Fitch said, hey – uh, we'll take him because by then he had come out with the Model One gotcha. fighter, you know what I mean, gotcha. all this stuff. Yeah, but I thought that was so crazy that 1938 he sent it to A and F, and they were like, I don't know, man. Yeah, like, uh, wow, uh, thanks, but no thanks. He was, however, able to uh, to, to. I have to look this one up. It was an affiliate of Abercrombie and Fitch, and it was Von. Langerke and Antoine, VLNF, according to Bo, is a meticulous record keeper. So he kept this amazing journal with, I mean, down to his first polishing and abrasives order. He has it labeled his first polishing <laughs> supplies order, and it's great for historians so because one for nostalgia. Huh? Yeah, you could you could track all That's that awesome. now. You know what I mean? So uh, he referenced them as VLNF. And they did pull the trigger on his hunting model line, his hunting knife line. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, And there you go. A star is born. And, you know, 
for you guys that are still hacking out in the garage or whatever it is, even if you have a building, even if you have a crew and things just aren't going your way, you just keep going, man. Never right. give up. Never because, give up, I mean, even started. Bo Randall was hit and miss on the market for <clears throat> years. Oh, yeah. Totally. You know? Totally. It, didn't, it wasn't until he had some notoriety under his belt Here's that, a- that people came and went, and went, okay, fine, we'll finally buy them. Oh, of course. We'd love yeah. to have your knives, Mr. Mm-hmm. Randall. You right. know what I mean? The other <laughs> thing that he did is he even did some rehandle and embellishment work. And so he was taking knives from Zolingen. Mm. He was taking, I'm going to say, Henkels and shit like that. And yeah. he was throwing new handles on it and then selling them to kind of fill <laughs> the gaps and whatnot. Sure, yeah. And that's crazy. I mean, you don't think of the Randall knife shop being like, oh, okay, this is cool. There's a Henkels knife. We'll put a handle on it and move it out the back door. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he was a resourceful cat, which I thought was pretty sweet. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the leather handles for the iconic leather handle that we know Randall by, the, they didn't start until 1942. Oh, Everything really? was wow. stag up until that point. Oh, I didn't and, know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and he huh. came out with this commando line, which isn't... We recognize the commando handle as kind of this hourglass Coke bottle shape, mm-hmm. you know, wasp waist, whatever you want to call it. it. I mean, it looks similar to uh, Fairbane Sykes' oh, yeah, definitely. handle. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. So, But in his original accounts, accounts of the commando style, it actually had nothing to do with that shape specifically. It had to do with making fighting knives for fighting men as opposed mm-hmm. to making hunting knives for hunting men. Gotcha. So Interesting. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. And then, no, pretty slick. Yeah, and then, you know, people who've carried his knives are all the way like uh, General James Garvin of the, the guy who spearheaded the 82nd Airborne on Normandy. <laughs> I mean, here's a guy who was pretty serious about his knife, right? Obviously, you guys know Ronald Reagan was a huge Randall fan. Yeah, he had right. He, he, had he was an Air Force yeah. captain at the time. Yeah. He carried him. And then, uh, you know, my personal favorite, and I'll give you guys a quick shot at this, and then we'll wrap this segment up is the Model 17 Astro. So I don't know if I'm familiar with that one. Check Model it out. 17. So here's your first survival knife, guys. This was the first hollow-handled knife. It had a pocket milled out in the tang of the knife, and it had removable guards that were slotted screwdriver screws, and it came with a little chingasso, a little... Uh, uh, screwdriver on a disc and you unscrew it in your survival equipment in there. And that was designed by uh, Gordon Cooper. So it was Gordon Cooper for the Mercury mission specifically. There's a lot of, one of the most famous pictures of Bo standing there kind of gazing at a knife, looking up Mm -hmm. into the foreground. That's a, that's an Astro in his hand. That's awesome. And in my early days, I got commissioned to make an Astro clone out of D2. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, oh, this will be great. This will be my first Randall attempt. You know, this is in our very first shop, and I was really stoked to do it. Uh, sh- around that time, previously my grandfather had died a number of years before, and around that time my grandmother was kind of doling out some effects from my grandfather. And it mm-hmm. made it through the family, and in there was this welcome back to earth pen. And my old man, my dad, was like, oh, that would look cool on his vest or something like that. You know what I mean? This welcome back to Earth, just kind of a funny saying. That's all the detail we had. Well, I get this button, and it's like a four-inch diameter campaign button. It says, welcome back to Earth, Gordon Cooper. And I was like, well, that's cool. And I just hung Uh it on my wall. Well, now I'm doing the research on the Randall Astro, and I've got the computer open. I'm taking a look at all the dimensions and the specs and everything, and I'm drawing this thing out in a full line drawing on the drafting table that I had set up in the office. And as I'm reading the history, 
it's like Gordon Cooper was the astronaut that designed this. And I look up and I shit you not made the air the har- air on, uh, hair on my arm stand up. And there's Gordon <laughs> Cooper's oh mug staring at me through an astronaut helmet <laughs> as I'm line drawing the knife that he designed. And I had never given that button a second thought until that very moment. And That's now awesome. you'll always find it in my shop or at my house or whatever. I love that button. That's it's a currently claim to fame right there. That's yeah. awesome. That's it was really just cool. a cool sequence of events that all tied together in a neat little package. But that was pretty cool. And nice. then, of course, you know, we lost we lost Bo in 1989. I was eight years old, and uh, and that was it. Never got to meet him, never got to thank him for the inspiration. But I tell you what, mm. I will carry that to my grave. That is fantastic. That's really cool. I didn't know that you made one of these already. I didn't actually um, – I guess I'm not as up in my Randall history as I really should be, but the, the 17 Astro, it's very nice. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's very uh, cool. Arguably yeah. the first harpoon. Uh, yeah, no, I was just I was just noticing that. I'm like, did they yeah. have other harpoons at this time? I don't think so. And so <laughs> harpoons are huge and now. And it was crazy. But, like, uh, yeah. spooks were all standing around, like, guarding everything. This was uh-huh. a big deal. You know what I mean? This nice. was a major. So they have these, like, agents. I don't know what agency they were there when I say spooks. <laughs> a, I'm a menacing yet unnamed Yeah, agency. some three-letter yeah. agency <laughs> is standing around, and they're making sure that everything's guarded under lock and key. And I think there's two of them from the Mercury mission uh-huh. at the Smithsonian right now. Nice. Which is pretty cool. Oh, man, that is pretty excellent. All right. I think that wraps up the history segment. I think it does. Absolutely. So um, I also want to take this opportunity to remind you guys that we have an email now on top of the Facebook group. <laughs> so we so check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast. And also set, you can send us a message or post on our wall there, and we'll definitely see it. Or if you want to send us an email – Send us an email to info at behindthebladepodcast.com. Working on the pod, working on the website every day. It'll be up shortly, I promise. At some I, point, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna step on this just a little bit, Jim, just sure. because we are getting hammered with messages, and we absolutely love all the support, and we love all the input and all the questions that Thank we're getting. You guys so much for this. It's great. However, if we could direct everything to info at behindthebladepodcast.com. (laughs) Then we have one source to check. Don't forget, we kind of do this for fun and we do it for you guys and we do it for us just to, you know, like I said, we sit around and talk about knives anyways. Might as well include you in the discussion. But if you could send all your questions to info at behindthebladepodcast.com, then we have one source that we have to check and it just makes our job easier. We want to do the best that we can do and every little thing that we can do to make that easier results in a better podcast by the end. Agreed. Okay, thank you guys so much. Take a qual- take a small break, and we'll be right back with the Q and A's. And we're back. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> uh, first things first, we have to give a special thanks to our quote unquote field correspondent Mike Lewis for keeping us pumped up with. Uh, the news articles that we've been using in the very first segment of the podcast. So, Mike, thanks. Keep them coming. We appreciate it. Much we'll, appreciated, brother. Absolutely, yeah. Just a, a huge help. Um, second off, from the corrections department. <laughs> uh, from the corrections department, I had stated that the Bark River Vehement Knives collaboration was the first time that the SOG knife was made domestically in the United States as a production model. Now, somebody chimed in and said, well, don't forget about Ruana knives. And they're out of Montana. And I do believe, though, a couple things. So I'm going to touch on this. Uh, I'm not sure I didn't look at the email to see who it was that corrected me on it. But um, I do believe they still fall into the custom market, just like we had stated about new uh, uh, Hank Martin and Martin knives. They do a custom SOG also. Um, however, the blade profile is very similar. 
Uh, I will make the distinction, though, just because I'm point blank like that, that as a historical SOG knife, it is not exactly or really in the vein of the historical SOG knife. It's a beautiful knife. Oh, it's, it's a gorgeous knife. I'm taking a look at it right now. I mean, the sheath is gorgeous. Obviously, a lot of hand and care, a lot, a lot of hand made and care went into this knife. I mean, to, to create a beautiful piece, but it's not totally the exact same knife. I mean, it has the, the same kind of trident looking spine and it looks really good. looks wicked. Um, and it definitely deserves a lot of credit in its own right, but it's not an exact recreation. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a SOG from the guard forward. And then when it goes back, Ruana really took their own, uh, you know, kind of twist to it. Which is with totally okay. Hunting style handle. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous knife yep. and I haven't been able to find one for sale. They all say sold. And I can only imagine what the number was before it said sold. Cause <laughs> it is a gorgeous knife. It looks like a high dollar item. To me. And, and if I'm not mistaken, those cats are still around. So I think it's worth checking them out so. because they do some pretty killer work there in Montana in the cold country. Yep. You can check out their website at Ruana knives.com. R U A N A knives.com. Whether or not they still make a SOG, I don't uh, think they do, but, Maybe you could uh, reinvigorate some interest in them, and that'd be great. I'd love to see this knife Absolutely. made more in the United States. Uh, what else we got, Jim? <laughs> allergies. That's what we have. Welcome <laughs> we to We got springtime spring, allergies. That's what we got. Right there, live on the air. We're real people. You guys yeah, yeah. know it. With real so, sneezes. <laughs> let's just go ahead and jump directly into the Q&A segment. And we have a ton of questions. We can't thank you guys enough for all the support that you've been giving us. Whenever we post up on the Facebook page and through email and stuff, you guys have just deluged us with amazing amazing questions and we really really appreciate it keep them coming however as matt said earlier we'd really like most of these questions to be to be directed to our email which again is info at behind the blade podcast.com anything you want read or anything you want addressed i would suggest directing to that email unless we do the post that keeps it pretty convenient too and we'll let you guys know and keep you uh guided along that but yeah any questions or corrections please send to the email explicitly um and what, what's our first question of the day? Oh, also, it's worth noting that, look, guys, I mean, we're, we're limiting this to about an hour plus or minus. We're not going to be able to get to every single question every single time. Sometimes it'll be from a, a question box we threw up a couple weeks ago, and we'll finally address it weeks later. But we're not going to hammer them all out. So it's just not in the cards. Correct. So don't be upset. However, if your question is provocative enough and it catches our eye, then we're delighted to talk about it on the air because... We love knife discussion. That's mm-hmm. what we're all about. Absolutely. And we love engaging you guys. You know, that yep. was the whole point of this so, effort. So if we don't read your questions, don't take it personally. Because it's definitely not like we're, oh, I know that guy. Screw that guy. I'm not reading his question. No, it doesn't happen at all. Nope. Not at all. It's just, it's just, you know, we, we have we have, we have a lot of questions to go through. And, and time constraints. And time yeah. constraints. So we, 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 we do weed through them. So um, I, I just beg for your patience. When you do this, all right, let's all go right. ahead. Not with that shit. Matt, first question. Coming from Phil Remington. Matt, how did you get your start in the industry? And Jim, did you ever consider anything other than the family business? Love the show. Phil, thank you so much. We love that you listen to us ramble on about nonsense. Um, <laughs> I got my start in the industry. I'm still trying to get my start in the industry. Let's be totally frank. Um, <laughs> I think I am too. I mean, as far as perspective goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, started in a garage, just like everybody. Um, I had a career, and that career was uh, it was pretty awesome, but it was not very awesome for my home life. So I quit that, and I had a feeling that if I set my mind to it enough and made my passion my vocation, that we would be successful in it. And I can't wait for that to start paying off. 
but but yeah so i mean that was it so i i just i had a love for knives i had made knives when i was younger you know out of stuff i think we touched on that in the beginning the very first episode when we talk about kind of who we were and uh at this point i had already Let's see, I, I, I officially started making knives, I would say, in around 2008, you know, here and there, but uh, as making knives, not necessarily a knife maker. I got my KMG grinder in 2011, and that's when I started approaching it as more of a, a real practice to the point that even when I was home from my regular job, uh, which wasn't very often, which is why I had to start making knives full time, by the way, um, but when I'd come <laughs> home from wherever I was at and... Uh, I would spend my weekends and evenings still making knives, even on my, my days off. So I eventually what we wanted to do was boost that up until it became a viable business. And then I could quit my career. And that happened December 6th of 2013. That's when I went full time into being a knife maker. And, and that's really how it started. And I, I had a deep passion for Loveless's fit and finish. And obviously his design, I, I thought there was something to the Randall knives that just it's a knife that you pick up and you want to use. And so I thought that was really cool. And I try to include elements of all that stuff in the work that we do. And some stuff is very utilitarian. I'm excited about the mid techs that are coming out because we want people to just hammer the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And then some stuff is a little bit more um, elite as far as the people who buy them because of the price. And that is just the nature of the beast. And they, they collect them. And some people use these high end collectibles and other people uh, put them on a shelf or in a safe or whatever it is you guys do with them. Uh, some people throw them in a box or a sock drawer. I don't really give a shit, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's that's how I got my start. Jim, have you? Did you ever consider anything other than the family biz? So, um, yeah, I did. So my my I have two older brothers, and let me let me just go ahead and start. One of them is a very successful chiropractor in Arizona right now. Has a big firm, um, has as a has a very big client base, and he is doing extremely well. And my other older brother is actually um, in a vice presidential position for a Fortune 500 company. And I can't remember exactly which one right off the bat. But, but it was inspiring to, to see them go out and be as successful as they were. I have, a, I have two natural affinities other than... Right, just to, I can to, tell you right, right. now, it's it, it's uh tech tech yeah. tech industry. Whether right. it's anything from video processing, audio processing, and every I can't even. You guys don't understand the conversations. <laughs> it's like Jim is talking to a five year old when when I'm in here. Like, so what do these squiggly lines mean on the processor? You know what I mean? It, he's really talented, Matt. For sure. Thank, thank you, Matt. Um, I I have a I have a natural affinity for for all things tech and all things computers, and I've been interested since a very young age in this stuff. So, so it, for me, it was a, it was a natural progression to take my love of creating things because I've always loved to create something, always, 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 no matter what it was. So, creating stuff like this podcast, creating stuff like this knife, it still hits that same moment of zen for me. So, what I did is I explored a career in the tech field, and what I was really hoping to do was be a uh, a network manager, basically a network administrator, oh, okay, a manager. So that was a Network uh, network topology, being able to administer and deploy networks on different architectures like Windows architecture, Linux architecture, and then sub-architectures -arch like Windows 10 versus Windows 8, 
architecture with Windows 2008 versus 2012 servers. If you don't believe him by now, then you're not (laughs) listening because I'm glassed over. My mouth is agape and I'm like, far out, man. (laughs) Right, right. He's got his shit wired tight when it comes to the tech world. Right, right. So, but it wasn't just Windows. It was, it was uh, the Linux world too and open source software and developing your own software to be able to do whatever, whatever you needed to do. And that whole thing absolutely appealed to me. So that's where I have my degree. I have my degree in computer systems technology with emphasis on security. I make knives full time. Yeah, yeah. So, so because because I actually prefer making knives and being involved in the family business and being in the knife industry over anything in the computer industry. Nothing in the computer industry even touches close to the to the to the piece of accomplishment I feel from hand making a piece of a piece of micarta and a piece of metal into something gorgeous. And so that's what that's what I stuck with. So. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that, uh, that there was a there's an avenue for that. Yeah, for, no for me right off the bat. So I, I I became I was I was very lucky in that. Excuse me, <clears throat> very lucky in that regard. So um, and yeah. you can tie that together in in the biz now because mm-hmm. I mean you're a lot of the networks and stuff like that. You are the resident tech support in house. Right, right. right. Yeah. I, I I'm fixing at least two people's computers every every week. Right. For for different different issues here and there. I mean it could be any anything from rebuilding a brand new computer from scratch from different parts because they need certain specifications and I can get the parts cheap to resetting somebody's password. So I mean it's just it's just all minor stuff. Here, I mean, I've used my skills in the shop right now to to, to make um, a fully fledged Windows Windows domain and Windows network of the domain, a backup domain, um, uh, uh, virtu- virtualizing other PCs for file sharing and and remote desktop applications, and and everything's working flawlessly and very well. Um, so yeah, I did consider it for a while, but man, the knife industry pulled me back in, and it wasn't against my will. I went, I went very willingly. Yeah, she'll, smile she'll, on my she'll face. get her claws into you. Yeah, she's oh, a siren for oh sure. Oh my god, and it, it's just there's nothing in the tech industry that is as satisfying to me as this. It's awesome. <clears throat> so yeah. I'm, I'm very happy about that. All right, next, next question. Next question. Uh, Jordan Richard Wagner. Question for both of you. What was the hardest thing for you to learn slash master when you began to make knives? What is still tricky for you? <clears throat> you want to take this one first or should I take it first? Go ahead. All right. The hardest thing for me to learn and master is patience with my own skill set. It's not even developing the skill. It's patience with myself and going and, and, and not going, you know what? You're a giant piece of crap and you need to go home and, and step on your own head. It's, it's knowing <laughs> what you're already good at. Right. Yeah. And, and being comfortable with that right. and then learning the rest of it instead of having expectations for yourself that are right. beyond your ability. Right. Yeah, right. Under, understand, understand that uh, with, with experience, with experience comes more experience. With experience comes skill. That's true. I mean, and uh, and uh, to just immediately expect some type of amazing result right off the bat because you were able to actually do a process from A to Z doesn't mean that the process was done as best as it possibly could be. And and I always catch myself after process Z going, you know what I could have done better was this and this and this. But that lends to a better skill for my own my that that, lend, that lends to like a leveling up, if you will, of my of my right. own skill. We use that term all the time, <clears throat> leveling up. I'm right. not even a big video game, but I uh, recognize the convention. So I mean, I don't care if it's wrenching on a bike or a jeep or making a knife or whatever it is. As soon as we add one more ability, technique, tool to our toolbox, whatever it is. 
uh, Jenna and I, my wife, we joke about it and say, oh, we leveled up. Some people level up their characters. Like, oh, this guy can now shoot lightning out of his eyeballs. And, and I'm like, well, now I can replace a power steering gearbox. You know what I mean? Right. So that's my leveling up. Right. Or now I can cut plunges like the Dickens, you know what I mean? Whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that is important. And as you build that up, but it, it also goes hand in hand with that. The smarter you become, the dumber you feel. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're like, oh, God. You know, there was a time when we were all cranking out super shitty knife shaped objects. <laughs> and we're going, this is awesome. Do you want me to sell this for hundreds of dollars? And, and somebody buys it, and you're like, oh, shit, sorry, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah looking back on yeah. it, you're like, I can't believe I, I had the pride enough to sell that. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I know I've been there, too, man. I um, think the the <clears throat> hardest thing for me is, uh, I mean, I can, I can make this very simple. Ship the fucking knife. It's done. Ship the knife. And, and <laughs> Move that, it out the door. Get paid for it. And yeah, I, totally I, I don't have... Um, I don't have that down yet. And so uh, anybody who follows Vehement Knives at all is that we are chronically late, and I'm not making light of that. It's something that weighs on me 24-7 to the point where when we had the shop in our house, um, I was – and we're going to get in some personal shit here. You guys guys ask a question, you're going to get an answer. Um, (laughs) It was so heavy on me that I couldn't take any time off. That means I I couldn't – and not because I'm working 24-7, but I actually couldn't enjoy free time with my family. I couldn't enjoy a weekend off or I couldn't handle tasks around the house because the guilt of being late, even though I was in the shop every day, all day, was unbearable. And that's the God's honest truth. And I tell you mm-hmm. what, I am as transparent as glass. And so I have no problem sharing this with you guys. Um, but the it was so overbearing that I because there were orders that were unfulfilled, it weighed on me so much that I couldn't just enjoy a day out because I'm like, oh my God, these people paid for these knives mm-hmm. or they're waiting for these knives. They ordered these knives and and here I am enjoying my free time. And I tell you what, mm-hmm. that is the hardest part for me is to get the knives out on time. And that's because I'm a finicky, prissy asshole. And <laughs> I I look at the knife and I'm like, wow, this guy just paid me you know hundreds of dollars and he's waited 18 months for this. I can't send it to him with this glaring flaw. And so knowing the hardest thing for me to master, and I know this isn't romantic. I, I wish I was like, you know, the hardest thing for me was jimping. Uh, you know, dragging <laughs> that file across the spine was a real motherfucker. Yeah, my- and it took me years to master it. That wasn't what really fucking kept no. me up at night. What kept me up at night was being able to know when having the knife in the hands of the customer was more valuable than having the knife my version of perfect because there is a diminishing return on that yeah you weren't kidding about being deep and so yeah Yeah. and and that's that's truly what it is and so that is the hardest thing about knife making for me um i'm able to make and execute business decisions i'm able to uh I think I can create a, a pretty reasonable project w- product with the help of, you know, Jenna and even with the help of Dio sometimes, our daughter, our 10-year-old daughter. She, she's really good in the industry too. <laughs> trust me. She's an icon. Um, but uh, that, was, that was the most difficult and it's something I struggle with today. And I came to the realization that my version of perfect was nothing more than my fucking ego. And I was like, if my name's going to be on it, yes, we stand behind our products. Yes, we have a lifetime unconditional warranty. Yes, if you don't like something about our knife, we'll be glad to fix it. But for me to be like, it's not perfect, I'm denying the customer the knife. And at that point, I have to ship it. So there you go. That's that's a that's a huge growing point, too. I mean, because I had that I had that for a very long time. 
and and your your level of quality is way higher than mine. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, on top of that, but um, but uh, even even when I was growing up and I was learning how to do this too, it would be I would be delaying shipments for a couple of days, like entire shipments, because because the tips weren't exactly perfectly right, or the grinds I felt were could have been done better, or something. something and then else you sit on it, either you <clears throat> fix it or scrap right, it. Yeah. When, when actually, even like the way it looked and the way it functioned was totally fine. Right. Right. I mean, it's just you got to recognize when to get it out the door and move it. Yeah. 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 You get lost. So, in that. so I mean, really there, there, you're going to have to compromise not with the quality of the knife, but with your own ego. And that, and that's exactly <clears throat> it. Right. I mean, it is is totally the maker's ego that causes these things? Because there are a lot of guys who hack shit out, and I mean hack shit oh out. Oh my god! Yeah. And they are bursting at the button. They think it's the best thing since a pocket on a shirt. You know what I mean? They're just so stoked about it. And you're like, man, that's kind of a piece of shit. But, you know, I don't criticize those people. But they obviously aren't wrapped up in it in the same way that, that I, I was or that Jim was right. at some point also. Right. So, Absolutely. Yeah, all right. So enough of that stuff. Otherwise, I'm going to start getting suicidal. Um, I do take weekends <laughs> off now. So all you guys that are waiting, I apologize. But I love my family, and I do this to support them. And I'm going to spend some time with them. So I take weekends off. So uh, And that's that's healthy for yourself as well. as It that. is. My production has actually gone up since I started right. doing that. Yeah. Right. You can focus yeah. better <laughs> yeah. because, because you can take some time off and then and then regroup. And then by Monday, yeah. I'm dying to get back in the shop. Like, to be quite frank, you know, this is just a little bit more personal history into Vehement Knives. But uh, to be completely honest, there are two things that – uh, clear that flush out my headgear and that's riding the motorcycle and standing in front of the grinder. And I wish knife making was more grinder time, but it is so much more than that. So, um, I love it. I absolutely love what I do and I'm eager to get back to it, uh, mm -hmm. by Sunday at about 10 PM. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I'm, I'm actually feeling a little bit of an itch today. If I didn't already have plans for tomorrow no, morning, almost, I'd be in the show. I almost went into work on that big bear today. <laughs> 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 All right. Next nice. question. Let's get out of this. Uh, Ryan Combs. I posted this one the other day. Not sure if it got lost. Ryan, uh, see our introduction. We do not get to every question all the time, but here it is again. Let's talk about blade thickness and history. I have heard that K-Bar started the robust knife craze, and the reason given is that good steel was not available, so they had to make thicker knives with cheap steel. Is that true? What is the story there? Also, since we are not supposed to pry with our knives, why the heck are fixed blades so thick? I'm going to answer this one. I'm going to come back and answer this in order, but I'm going to answer this one right now because you meatballs pry with your knives, So we, even if you're not supposed to. <laughs> so we have to cater to the market. <laughs> so, right, right. Somebody um, was prying with a thin knife, and then it broke, and then we made thicker knives. I love the confidence yeah. of my Bark River Bravo EDC gives, but it's pretty thick for a pocket knife. I would love to hear you guys get into that a bit. I'm loving the new podcast, and thanks a lot. Thank you, Ryan, and let's Excellent, answer Ryan. your Thank question. You. Um Okay, so the K-Bar thing is bullshit. The K-Bar knives are about, I think they're like 530 seconds. I don't think they've been different than I that. I think they're just a yeah. CH over an eighth inch, if anything. Yeah. And they're yeah. 1095, and I think they always have been. And furthermore, the K-Bar was developed for Marines getting off of amphibious craft. Uh, if we were to go to major conflicts in World War II and stuff like that... Uh, these guys had a life expectancy of about seven minutes. Yeah, we're talking and, about an economic an, an economic choice and spending money on outfitting of a certain part. Right, and I'm not no. saying that as a reflection on K-Bar, the company now. I'm saying that as the contract bid that was in place back in uh, World War II, I yeah. guess, is when they really kind of kicked off. 
uh, even though K Bar is older than that as a company. Uh, but the, you, we're not talking about K Bars. Let's pull that out altogether. We're talking about the United States Navy Mark II fighting knife. This is the follow up to the Navy Mark I, which was a five inch blade, and they went to the Mark II, which is a seven inch blade mm-hmm. on a five inch handle. And dimensionally, they wanted a larger fighting knife for hand-to-hand combat, not just for sailors to cut rope on the decks of ships. So what they did is they came out with this knife. It was lowest bidder. Everybody made different ones. Western made the Shark. Uh, there was obviously the Navy Mark II made by Camillus, by Ontario, by K-Bar, by, I think, Imperial, yep. uh, Ariel. I, I mean, so many. Uh, there, there, was, there was two or three more that, that are lesser known now. I mean, totally. just, just to kind of illustrate the point. that Case, the I think, even yeah, touched right, on the Mark II. Right, you they, know. They, they all wanted a piece of the action, so all of them got in on and it. And it was all hands on deck. And so yeah. as the war effort spooled up, every single cutler in the planet, or in the country, and, you know, the, I shouldn't say the planet. I was being a speaking. Planet in, America. I was, I was speaking in hyperbole, <laughs> or hyperbole, however you want to pronounce it but uh, <laughs> yeah. um yeah so but everybody in the united states all the colors united states had to ramp up their efforts to make this so no the k-bar was not and is not a robust knife it is a fighting knife made out of 1095 spring steel and it was thin and it was cheap to make and people brought them back but honestly they weren't expected to even come back as sad as that may be yeah they weren't expected to be returned and they gained favor out of the lore and out of the history and the effectiveness of the knife both as a utility knife and as a fighter for dagging dagging crowds here here. so uh so to touch on that right there so the robust knife craze you guys pry with your knives we're gonna make knives that are able to be pried with do i recommend it no do i do it fuck yeah so (laughs) that's all there is to it and you open up the paint can time to get a knife yeah (laughs) and and as far as uh uh Steels and stuff going. Everybody asked about the steels, and we touched on that and said it's all in the heat treat. Um, look, we made our EOD UXO knife. You guys, hang on to your hat, all you 3V maniacs out there. We made our EOD UXO knife, which is nothing more than a glorified pry bar attached to a chisel with a root saw on one edge and a almost <laughs> sharp edge on the other. I saw this one. And, right, yeah. Okay. And, and so, <laughs> and th- that's what it was. And it's really just meant for digging ordnance out of the ground, right? Uh, it's nothing glorious or romantic. It's just for prying rusty shit out of mud. And it was a dedicated pry bar. And hang on to your hat, kids. We made it out of ATS-34. ATS-34. And you <laughs> know what? Heads just exploded. I have what? hundreds of them in the field, and they're prying with them all the time. Yes, we had one comeback that broke. It was a guy in pretty diminutive size. I'm a buck 30 and 5'6". A guy was about my size, maybe a little bit smaller. He put it in the fuse well of an 81-millimeter mortar, and it snapped off like it was made of balsa wood. We took it. <laughs> this is a true story, oh. and, and I'm not embarrassed to say this. We took it to a metallurgist. We put it under a stereo microscope. We went through the entire thing, and there was a carbon band that lined up with a scratch on the edge, and he happened to put that scratch and that carbon band right on the lip of that nice. fucking mortar and he just broke it like it was made of nothing wow now there are hundreds uh, in the field and i get photos all the time of them banged up dirty next to all different ordnance from all different countries and uh and they're fine and we sent this guy another one out and he's been using it for years since and it's fine so nice. it was an anomaly but that is not ats 34's fault that was just that one piece of steel to that one scratch to that one fuse well but so, I mean, look, they're using them as pry bars, and they're out of what people would consider as a tired old steel, and they think they need to get a tougher knife out of 3V. Is 3V tougher? Fuck yeah, it is. Do I love 3V? Fuck yeah, I do. But don't shit on the old steels either, because they are very capable. They still work extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anything <clears throat> else? Um, well, there was a sharpening question. Oh, yeah. From Dan, from Dan Schwyman Jr., you guys touched upon sharpening in a previous Q&A already, but my question is with regard to motion. I know you can sharpen into the edge. Edge trailing are both Japanese scrubbing motions, but what are your thoughts on using circular motions on a sharpening stone? Does it cause any negative effects? Um, If you don't have as much control as you think you do and you go with a sharpening motion on 
it can be on a razor, it can be on a knife, you'll just screw your knife up. Because because as you take your circular motion, if you don't know precisely what you're doing and you're going very slowly and you're just kind of like going ham on it back and forth, you just end up with a, an extremely either a braided, sucked up edge or you're not touching the edge at all and you're hitting the side. <clears throat> you're, you're, you're hitting the side of the knife and wiping out your grind line. The circular motions is designed that that entire technique is designed to remove a lot of material very quickly and so you're going forward in one motion and backward in one motion just in kind of like very quick succession. like a handheld blanchard grinder <clears throat> right basically right. is what you're doing is, is you're just you're just doing a reverse on the table blanchard grinder but instead of the stone moving your hand is moving no when i'm in the field i do that mm-hmm. on my axes except the axe mm-hmm. is stationary and the stone is circular working towards the edge so imagine mm-hmm. the edge is actually edge up i'm right. looking straight down on the edge yeah maybe on an oblique by a couple degrees right. and then i use a, a circular motion with the stone and i don't know if i'm so, doing it wrong but well no no i works. don't think you're doing it wrong it just takes practice if you don't know what you're doing you can really screw your knife up okay. but but just just make sure that you're you you're really getting a very consistent circular motion a lot of people have excellent circular motions um whenever i uh whenever i do the first initial bevel on a razor if i'm making a razor from scratch i'll do circular motions to, to just kind of do the edge, but I'm absolutely sure that I'm totally toward the heel when I'm all the way up and totally toward the tip when I'm on my way back. Is it worth come back. these guys while to go to a swap meet, go to a yard sale, pick up a couple junkie knives and then try a couple techniques totally. just, just to see where their body mechanics yes. are at? Yeah, no, I would totally agree with you. If you have like a Norton 1 and 1 1 1 1K or 5K or an 800 and 1200 grit stone or or you can pick those up on Amazon for like 30 40 bucks. And they're they're decent sized stones, and you 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 can go out there and spend twenty bucks and buy like four or five cheap knives just to practice. Then absolutely give it a shot. But I recommend highly that you practice on something that you don't care about at all first before attempting um, a circular motion at all. You can ruin some knife sharpening. You, it you took can me a ruin long some time knives. to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I've seen I've seen some terrible stuff where a guy will buy one of my knives. He'll decide that he he'll decide that uh, he just needs to sharpen it immediately and then we'll get it and the blade is gone just like from just like instead of a nice blade profile that has a nice drop after the ricasso it is from the line of the ricasso meaning they've already removed like a quarter of an inch it looks like that western knife in your grandpa's tackle box (laughs) and there's a straight line drawn from the ricasso to about an inch behind where the tip was yeah because they were just going ham on their 320 grit stone not turning into a paring knife right not knowing what they were doing right right and it was still too obtuse to cut and it was still jagged it was everything so i highly recommend practice 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 on cheap crap <laughs> ray, ray mears right? we may have touched on that ray mears yeah. has a great video on youtube uh and that was the one look i jim i'm assuming mm-hmm. and phil is in is you kind of had this obsession with knife sharpening maybe it was from the razor discipline or it was from the razor is. discipline and you're like I, I want to be a master at this yeah and i'm just a meatball who likes knives and i'm like <laughs> my knife no cut no more <laughs> and i'm like how do i how do i yeah. make this better and i couldn't sharpen knives to save my life it wasn't until i would say like 2007 plus or minus that i was able to, to put out. a serviceable edge on a knife otherwise i was just <laughs> wrecking what was already a decent oh, no. edge, like just ruining knives. <laughs> and I saw a video by Ray Mears, and he's doing it with a Scandi. But just imagine that that Scandi bevel is your secondary bevel, your edge bevel on a conventional flat or hollow to secondary bevel. Right. Mike, yeah, Mike, I don't do micro. Don't no. get me started. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> uh, but you know, I saw that video and something clicked. Something really clicked. So I recommend all you guys to get out on YouTube and find the Ray Mears. I think he has one or two videos on knife sharpening in the field and knife sharpening at base camp. And if anything clicked for me, it was that. So I hope it works for you too. Very cool. 
Very cool. Yeah, yeah, Matt, your knives are sharp now. I don't know. I didn't feel anything from back in the day. That's, but oh, they were terrible. You wouldn't be able to tell. You're like, so which way's up? <laughs> it was terrible. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, no, my my whole sharpening kind of thing started when uh, when I made friends with Michiel Van Hoot. Oh from, yeah, from from Belgium. The muscles from Brussels. Muscles from Brussels. Yeah. He's got. He is an incredible sharpener. I mean, he just he's yeah, he's a really freak. really knows his stuff. Him and Kenneth Kenneth Schwartz. Um, Tom Blodgett from uh, from Genda Industries. I got to meet him last year at Blade. Great guy. Those guys really, really know sharpening. I mean, it's like they've taken it to a science. It's like it's like imagine you're a NASA satellite telemetrist, and then you're speaking to, and then and then you're speaking to the guy that invented satellite telemetry. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. basically it's basically the difference between you know in this and stuff before. I've got knife making down. Like I can, I can make a knife pretty, pretty solidly, but these guys oh, yeah. can sharpen. Yeah, they yeah. really know. I mean, like, I mean, like you're talking about mirror edged, perfectly formed by hand, freehand shit, freehand. Yeah, I mean, awesome. I mean, they, they really know what they're doing. Hanging hair test is like their standard. You familiar? <laughs> if, if you're not familiar with the hanging hair test, basically you take your hand, you run it along your scalp until you pull free hairs, and then you you lay your knife edge up, and you and you drop the knife vertical, or you drop the hair perpendicular to the edge straight down and if it'll be it's so sharp that the edge itself catches the hair as you're pulling it down and cuts it that's a sharp knife all right and that that's the standard for razors right absolutely but but we're talking about like a bravo one that can do this yeah that's bananas yeah. and which which is absolute bananas level of sharpness i mean you don't want that in a work edge in a work edge that kind of edge actually breaks down when you when you hit wood with it or when you start scraping with it you'll actually break the edge out so, so different edges have different applications. Something like that's really more for shaving your face or for extremely fine kitchen work or stuff. Or if you need to cut an atom in half. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but that was my introduction. But that was my introduction into it was uh, was razors. And the circular motion is basically what you would use to abrade lots of metal in a short amount of time. Like correcting an edge. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Right. Sweet. Well, so, I, I think that's it. I think I, that wraps us up. I think I think so, man. That was a good episode this week. Yeah, I hope so, you guys enjoyed it. We enjoyed the shit out of the double barrel history. Uh, and then next week, of course, is our big interview with Todd Begg. So we hope that you guys join us for that. And as we mentioned previously, if you have any questions or comments, please hit us at info at behindthebladepodcast.com. And hopefully we'll get to your question on the air. Otherwise, uh, we will take your corrections and be sure to announce those on the air. <laughs> Uh, you guys have a kick-ass week. We should be back live, I think, next Friday. We should be recording next Thursday, so we'll yes, be sir. live next Friday. And uh, this is Matt Martin signing off for Jim Stewart, reminding you guys that friends don't let friends buy ugly knives. Have a great week. Thank you.